Thanks for being part of Parkside Green's Bible study. Uh, Pastor Steve here, eager to study through 1 Kings chapter 3 with you. Uh, the question of succession has been answered in chapter 1, and the kingdom has fully transitioned from David to Solomon in chapter 2. And what comes next is a glimpse into Solomon's mixed character in chapter 3. Solomon is like all humans. He's made in God's image. He's capable of great good, but he's also a sinner capable of great wrong. This chapter will show a mixture of kind of worldly weaknesses and spiritual strengths in Solomon. In the famous words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts right through the heart of every human being. Solzhenitsyn says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And that's clearly the case with the two sides of Solomon two sides of Solomon. As I studied through this third chapter, I organized it under four headings, which might assist you if you're taking notes. Uh, Solomon's sinful stumbles in verses 1 to 4 is our first section. Secondly, we'll see Solomon's saintly supplication in verses 5 to 9. Thirdly, God's generous gifts, verses 10 to 15. And lastly, fourthly, divine discernment demonstrated in verses 16 to 28. So we begin with Solomon's sinful stumbles in verses 1 to 4. Verse 1 tells us that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. As a matter of military and political expediency, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter to live with him as one of his wives in Jerusalem, at least until he had finished building his house and the house of the Lord and the wall protecting the city of David. See, having Pharaoh's daughter on hand would make it very unlikely that Egypt would attack Israel, let alone Jerusalem. Also, Egypt's willingness to make an alliance with Israel may show that Egypt was a little bit weak and Israel was becoming stronger at this time. It seems shrewd, right? I mean, it was common to use royal marriages as a diplomatic tool. But the problem was, it was worldly wisdom that was sinful in God's eyes. You see, the Hebrew verb translated here as made a marriage alliance is the same Hebrew verb translated in Deuteronomy 7.3 as intermarry. When it says in Deuteronomy, you shall not intermarry with women of other nations because they would turn you away from following the Lord to serve other gods. And if you read ahead to chapter 11, you'll see that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Now, in the Bible, there's no problem with inter-ethnic or interracial marriage. That's all good. But there's a huge problem with inter-religious marriage, in this case, with Egypt, Israel's historic oppressor and enemy. So an Egyptian marriage alliance is Solomon's first sinful stumble. And his second sinful stumble is sacrificing at the high places. Verse 2 tells us that it was common practice among the people of Israel to sacrifice at various high places. These were local shrines usually found at some slight elevation throughout the land. Oh, what's wrong with that, you might wonder? Isn't it good to offer sacrifices? 
Well, for background, you can read Deuteronomy 12, where Israel was commanded to destroy all the places where the Canaanite nations served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills. So instead of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, offering burnt offerings at any place they wanted, the Israelites were to worship at the place that God would choose, which we now know is Jerusalem. So, while verse 3 commends Solomon for loving the Lord and walking generally in the statutes of David his father, it adds only or except that, in the NAS and NIV, except that only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. It's a second strike against him. Yes, Solomon loved the Lord, but it seems he didn't have a, a wholehearted or whole-souled faithfulness. So the bad side of Solomon is seen in his disobedient interreligious marriage and in his sacrificing at the high places. And that takes us from Solomon's sinful stumbles to Solomon's saintly supplication in verses 5 to 9. Now we know from 2 Chronicles 1-3 that the tabernacle or the tent of meeting was at Gibeon, just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And there, Solomon offered 1,000 burnt offerings, and the Lord graciously appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, asking Solomon to name his preferred gift from the Lord. Ask what I shall give you. And here's where we see the good side of Solomon. He starts by acknowledging how the Lord had shown great and steadfast love to David, even giving him a son to sit on his throne because... David walked before the Lord in faithfulness, righteousness, and uprightness of heart. And Solomon then addresses Yahweh as, O Lord, my God. Not just David's God, but my God. And Solomon acknowledges that the Lord, his God, was the one who made him king after David. You're the one, Lord, who has put me on the throne. Solomon also knows he's inexperienced. I'm, I'm but a little child. And he's inadequate to reign, right? not knowing how to go out or come in. Israel, he acknowledges, is the Lord's great people. They're great, numerous, God's chosen people. So Solomon asks the Lord to grant him an understanding mind to govern the Lord's people. Solomon needs God's help to discern between good and evil if he's to be able to govern over this nation of the Lord's great people. There's a lot to learn, I think, from Solomon's saintly supplication. He humbles himself, right? He humbles himself before the Lord, recognizing the Lord is the one who caused him to rise to power. Solomon also acknowledges his dependence, his dependence on God. He's like a child with his father. Only as God helps him will Solomon be able to carry out his great duties. So the good side of Solomon is that when he had the chance to ask for whatever he wanted, he requested an understanding mind, also translated as a discerning heart in the NAS and NIV. If Solomon is to govern the Lord's people justly, he must be able to discern between good and evil. And only as God allows him to distinguish right from wrong, will Solomon be able to govern justly or administer justice. So the good side of Solomon is that, as one commentator put it, he knows 
that long-term wisdom and success reside where David found it in an ongoing relationship with the Lord his God. Then we see that Solomon's saintly supplication is answered by God's generous gifts. God's generous gifts in verses 10 to 15. It pleased the Lord when Solomon could have asked him for anything that Solomon asked him for an understanding mind or discerning heart. See, Solomon's request was not focused on himself, asking for long life or riches or the life of his enemies to be taken. Here Solomon did not seek his own personal good, but sought the common good. He asked for understanding to discern what's right. So the Lord graciously granted his request for a wise and discerning mind. Solomon was going to be like anyone before him or anyone after him in wisdom. And then, as a bonus, the Lord threw in incomparable riches and honor. And lastly, on the condition that Solomon walked in the ways of the Lord and kept God's statutes and commandments, as David did, God would also lengthen Solomon's days, give him a long life. What a God Solomon met in that dream. What a God he met in that dream. And then in response to God's generous gifts, Solomon left the high place at Gibeon and he went to Jerusalem and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings before the ark, as well as making a feast for all of his servants and celebrating God's goodness. Well, that brings us to our final and longest section, divine discernment demonstrated in verses 16 to 28. The Lord has generously promised Solomon, unparalleled wisdom beyond all before him and all after him. And then we immediately are given a stunning example of Solomon's understanding mind to govern the Lord's people. Remember, it's wisdom from above, right? It's a gift of God. It is divine discernment demonstrated. Two prostitutes brought their case to the king perhaps without any outside witnesses to corroborate or refute their testimony, normal legal procedure could not be followed. It was truly a case of one woman's word against the other, which seemed to make it impossible to resolve. So they came before the king as the highest court of appeal. The first woman begins explaining that they shared a house together, no one else was there, and they had both given birth to little boys within three days of each other. Soon tragedy struck. According to the first woman's reconstruction of the events, the second woman had accidentally suffocated her son by laying on him at night. So at midnight, the second woman switched her dead son for the first woman's living son. But in the morning, the first woman took a close look at the, the dead boy in her arms as she tries to nurse him and he's unresponsive and saw, he's not the son that she'd been caring for these past days. And she realized what had happened. Well, at that point, both women went back and forth before the king, claiming that the living child was theirs and the dead child belonged to their housemate, now turned enemy. It's a classic and sad case of, she said, she said. It's an especially difficult case because both the women are prostitutes who could be considered unreliable witnesses. And their stories are both somewhat plausible 
and there's really no outside witnesses to help decide who's telling the truth here. And the stakes are extremely high, right? The child's whole future and the future of these mothers is in the balance. It would take extraordinary wisdom to discern who the real mother was. And that's exactly the wisdom that the Lord gave to Solomon. After summarizing the claims and counterclaims, Solomon asked for a sword to cut the living child into bisecting and giving half to each woman. This was a wise test that drew out the real mother, who immediately pled with Solomon not to kill the child, but give him to the other woman, right? Her baby's life was more important than even her getting to rear him. On the other hand, the lying mother shockingly supported dividing the baby in two so that neither would have him, showing that her heart was full of envy, that the other mom's child lived while hers had died. Solomon then told them, put the sword down and give the living child to the woman whose maternal instincts clearly identified her as the real mom. The Lord had truly answered Solomon's request that he be given an understanding mind to govern the Lord's people. Back in verse 9. A word got around to all Israel about the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe or fear in awe of the king because they perceived that God's wisdom was in him to do justice. Wisdom to do justice like that could only come from the Lord. God had given his people a wise king. Yay! But not a perfect king, we recall from the first two verses of the chapter. There were two sides to Solomon, which included his disobedient marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh, and his sacrifices at the high places. Even the wisest man on planet Earth was not a perfect king. Remember what Jesus said about Solomon in Luke 11:31. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here, Jesus says. Something greater than Solomon, namely himself, the Son of God, is here among you. Well, through God's generous gift, Solomon was incredibly wise, but at times he acted unwisely, especially as we'll see when we get to chapter 11. So Solomon reminds us of the truly wise king, Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge according to Colossians 2.3. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. Unlike Solomon, there's no bad side to Jesus. Jesus never failed, never acted unwisely, never sinned, and his kingdom never comes to an end. But we have come to the end of chapter 3, so let's conclude with three possible applications. Number one, like Solomon, ask the Lord for wisdom. People's prayers, our prayers are often focused on long lives and finances, right? our physical health and, and our financial wealth. God is pleased when we ask him for wisdom so that we can live in his ways and serve his people. You remember James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's me, that's all of us, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. 
ask the Lord for wisdom every single day. Number two, like Solomon, pray humbly, right? expressing our dependence on God's help. So rather than being proud or self-reliant, let's humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. Scripture says several places, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Thirdly, recognize that we're like Solomon, right? On the one hand, we're made in God's image and capable of great good. And on the other hand, we're also sinners capable of great wrong. Thank God for sending Jesus, who is for all his followers, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.24. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you now asking for you to grant us wisdom from above. We each acknowledge that we lack wisdom, and so we ask you to give us your wisdom generously, even as you did with Solomon. And like Solomon, we come before you humbly, acknowledging our dependence on you, As Solomon said, we're but little children and we need your help, Father, to help fulfill your purposes for us. We also admit that we're like Solomon, that at our best, by your grace, we reflect your image and at our worst, we disobey you and don't fully walk in your ways. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to rescue us from our sins and to become to us who are in Christ our wisdom our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We praise you, Father, through your Son, Jesus. Amen.